Good evening. Thank you for coming tonight. Of course, we're here on a New Year's Eve service and wondering if you are looking forward to the prospects of 2012 or not. Oftentimes, we are admonished to live in the present, in the now. Make the most of today. But living in the present is not always all that it's cracked up to be. Life seems futile and miserable when we find no joy in the past and no hope for the future. What brings comfort and peace in life? Think about a person that has lost a loved one, a spouse. What is their present situation like? What is going to be meaningful for them? I submit to you it's the past memories, reflection on what it was like when that loved one was alive, conversations, places, events, a fond remembrance of the past, and the hope of the future. To think that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that we're going to be reunited and that we're going to be with our loved ones again. If you take the present and divorce it from the past, we fail to learn a lot of lessons. And if we take the present and divorce it from the future, we have very little reason for hope or expectation. Communion is a time to both embrace the past and the future. It focuses upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is in the past, and it's a proclamation of the Lord's return, which is in the future. So 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he comes. A reflection of what was before and what is to come. If, as I said, we are to live our lives in isolation from the past and the future, if we make a hard severance, our actions become irrelevant. There doesn't seem to be any consequence. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. What are we to do with today if there's no future? Paul said, If there is no resurrection, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's the attitude of many. There's no real purpose in life. There's no no meaning to life. There's no reality to life. When that happens, there's just a dullness. And I would submit to you that our nation is living in a time of great dullness. It is purposefully seeking to forget our religious heritage and moorings that brought us to the present place of blessedness. A failure to recognize why our country is so rich and so wealthy and so free. It's because of that marvelous Christian heritage that we have enjoyed. And many are purposefully closing an eye to those past realities. And as a consequence, the future is looking mighty bleak. Economically, Socially, people have very little hope, for they don't put their faith and trust in God. 
2012 for them has a lot of misery and futility. So what is the hope for our nation and our society and our own families? I would submit to you that that hope is described in Psalm 85, and I invite you to turn with me. That's where my meditation is tonight. In the form of revival. Revival. Oftentimes, I contemplate a theme for the year. It's a theme that I adopt personally in reading the Scriptures. And in my devotional time, to read them with a certain perspective, a certain lens, if you will, through which I I read the Scriptures and, and try to meditate upon one idea throughout the year. And for me this year, it's the theme of revival. And I would like to talk to you a little bit about revival this evening because it's a subject that's often very misunderstood. And so I'm going to talk about it in terms of asking a series of questions about revival. First, who are the proper candidates for revival? Answer, the proper candidates for revival are those who know the Lord. Look with me at Psalm 85, verse 6, which I'm adopting as the theme verse. Will thou not thyself revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Notice, it's a prayer to revive us, in verse 6. And the us is identified as your people. So that when we are speaking about revival, we aren't speaking about evangelism. That's one of the, the things that oftentimes is misunderstood. Uh, that revival meetings are viewed as evangelistic campaigns. But in this verse and in the Word of God in general, revival is not about evangelism. It's about God's people being restored in fellowship to them. It's those that already have life to be revived, to be infused anew and afresh. Revival can be both individual and corporate, but the emphasis in our text is upon corporate revival. Verse 6. Will thou not thyself revive us again? It's not just, will you revive me, but will you revive us? And that is one of the unique aspects about revival. Revival, as we think of it, is in terms of a large populace, where the Spirit of God moves, usually on a geographical region, in which people are just endowed with incredible spiritual fervor. For example, in our nation, one of those times of great revival is known as the Great Awakening. It was a period of time in the New England colonies from the 1730s to 1740s when Jonathan Edwards reached manhood in the 1720s New England had been settled by Englishmen for a hundred years. So, Christianity had been a part of the founding of this country a hundred years before the time of Jonathan Edwards. 
And, of course, those individuals came to the New England states in order to gain religious freedom. They had been persecuted as a people. So the pilgrims came longing for religious freedom. In Jonathan Edwards' parish at Northampton, Massachusetts, awakening began in 1734. Earlier sparks of revival had appeared in New Jersey, where Theodore's Franklin and William Gilbert Tennant were attempting to arouse people out of spiritual lethargy. And they were succeeding. Revival gathered momentum in Massachusetts and Connecticut, fueled in large part by the first tour in New England by the English preacher George Whitfield in 1740. When is revival needed? Revival is needed when God's people are failing to rejoice in Him. Look at verse 6. Will you not yourself revive us again with this intent that your people may rejoice in you? The word to rejoice here is to be made glad, to bring a smile to one's face. It is to find a delight, a pleasure in God. May we be overwhelmed again with the goodness and love and mercy of our God. May it bring a smile to our face. And may it be as pleasurable for us to be in His presence as it would be to be engaged in any other activity. It's an affection of the heart. In an article entitled Colonial New England and Old Order New Awakening in the Christian History Magazine, the condition in New England at the time just prior to the revival is described as follows. The settlers, I quote, the settlers had begun with the idea that the visible church should be identical with the invisible. That is, the gathered congregation should be bodies of true believers. Nominal Christianity is indeed unthinkable among persecuted sects. If one suffers for one's beliefs, one will either believe strongly or forsake those beliefs. But in the new world, away from persecution... And adjusted to life in new territory, nominal Christianity became a reality. Mingled with devout believers were church members who were merely paid lip service to Christian belief. The vision of New England as a righteous city on a hill never died completely, but realistic observers were painfully aware that many church members gave little attention to building up the kingdom of God in America. They were far more interested and prospering materially in the vast land with its seemingly infinite possibilities. Now, the irony was that outwardly, it was a religious period in our nation. And it was a conservative period. I go on to quote, "Such Such a society was a far cry from the mother country, where poverty, alcoholism, Sexual immorality and other social ills prevailed. Yet the Puritan clergy knew that the people of New England were losing their original spiritual drive. It wasn't that they looked at the church and said, oh, how sinful it is. Look how it's engaging in immorality. Look how its people are engaged in drunkenness. No, there was quite a difference between religion in the New England states in the 1720s and what was taking place in Great Britain in the 1720s. But 
the clergy realized, Jonathan Edwards realized, that though things looked pretty good outwardly, there had become a dullness about spiritual things. And so revival is needed when we take for granted God's incredible blessing to us. In Psalm 85, the first three verses speak of the forgiveness that God's people enjoy. O Lord, Thou dost show favor to Thy land. Thou dost restore the captivity of Jacob. Thou dost forgive the iniquity of Thy people. Thou dost cover all their sins, Selah. Thou dost withdraw all Thy fury. Thou dost turn away from Thy burning anger. So that God had blessed Israel, and Israel was experiencing that blessing. So too in the New England states. God was blessing the colonies. And so revival is needed when we sense that somehow God is displeased with us. Verse 4. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine indignation toward us to cease. God's wrath had been removed, according to verse 3. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. There was no wrath of God. God had restored the children of Israel. Whether this psalm is written out of the exodus from the land of Egypt or whether it's post-exilic after the children of Israel were delivered from Babylon is irrelevant. The issue is that here were a people that God had wonderfully delivered and they were being blessed of God. However, there was still a sense of God's displeasure that was being experienced. Verse 4, Restore us again, O God of our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Says the NIV, the ESV says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. In verses 4 and 5, however they are translated, there should be a recognition that there is a There are different words that are used to speak of God's displeasure in verses 4 and 5 than what are used in verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3 talks about God's wrath. God's fury is how it's translated in some versions. It is is God's unacceptance of God's people, uh, of, of, of a people. And so they experience God's wrath. Verses 4 and 5 are not that. They're not talking about wrath. It's talking about displeasure. It's not talking about being lost. It's talking about being out of fellowship with God. So one of the times in which we need revival is when we, we just feel kind of out of fellowship with God. It may not feel very real to us. We may not be as delighted in Him as we ought to be. There's just an awareness that that there seems to be some kind of barrier between ourselves and God. So the psalmist asks in verse 4, Restore us, O God, of our salvation. Cause thine indignation toward us to cease. Will thou be angry with us forever? Will thou prolong thine anger to all generations? 
So what is the primary nature of revival? What does it look like? Well, verse 6, I think, sums it up for us quite well. The primary nature of revival is for God's people to find their delight in God. Will thou not thyself revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? On December the 17th, in 1743, Jonathan Edwards wrote a letter to a minister in Boston depicting, quote, the nature of awakened religious experience, unquote, in his parish. That's how Jonathan Edwards constantly referred to this revival, an awakening. It was as though a people had moved from slumber and sleep to being wide awake in their relationship with God, moving from lethargy lethargy to an excitement. And in describing the effects of the awakening In this particular letter, Jonathan Edwards writes, and I quote, The minds of the people in general appeared more engaged in religion, showing a greater forwardness to make religion the subject of their conversation, to meet frequently for religious purposes, and to embrace all opportunities to hear the word preached. It was just a a hunger and thirsting after the word of God and for a deeper religious experience. So that in times of revival, our delight is found in God. And that delight is as simple as wanting to talk about God. When you're with other other Christians, what is on the focal point of our conversation? What is it that we enjoy talking about? What is it that we want to communicate to each other? Well, in times of great revival, it's God. We're excited about what we have read in the Word of God. We're excited about the answer to prayer. We're delighted to see what God is doing in the lives of our children. And we speak of God with great tones of appreciation. We want to talk with God. We want to pray. We want to know more of God. We want to spend our time in experiencing God. As you know, of course, one of the emphases that I'm going to have on Sunday is reading the Bible through in a year. It's going to take a commitment of about uh, 15 minutes a day reading three chapters. Is it hard to spend 15 minutes in something that you delight to do? You know, 30 seconds with uh, your hand on a hot stove is an eternity. But 15 minutes with a loved one that assumes you're going to depart goes all so quickly. It's a matter of perspective. Paul writes to Timothy and says to them, I, charge, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. During the time of revival, preaching was in season. The Puritans would often preach two and three hours. 
And people would go home for lunch and come back and want to hear more. It was a time in which people gathered in their homes and reflected on these things. The psalmist in Psalm 1 says, um, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Because he delights in it. That's where his thoughts are. That's where his attitudes are. I tell you, people, Christendom needs revival. Christendom needs revival. The church in America desperately needs revival. The Word of God is not central to the, to the worship experience in the evangelical church. It just isn't. In fact, the Word of God is being ignored more and more and more. Before we can ever address what is wrong with our country, we have to address what is wrong with the church. It was a vital church that led to a vital America. And it will be a vital church that will lead to a vital future for America. Revival begins with God's people. And it begins by reflection on the goodness and grace and love of God. The delighting in God often results in evangelistic fervor. And that's why oftentimes it's associated with evangelism. But... It begins with God's people. So where does revival come from? Well, revival comes from God alone. Look at Psalm 85, verse 6. NAS, the uh, 95 version, says this. Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Now, it's only in the New American Standard, out of all the modern translations, even the King James, in which you have the emphasis, the emphatic you. Will you, not yourself, revive us again? But it's a wonderful translation. For it is just that. It is extremely emphatic in the Hebrew. Will not you, O God, will not you revive us again? For there is no other place for revival to come from. It is God and God alone. It can't be manufactured. It can't be conjured up. It's not just a style of worship. It's not a certain methodology that if you do this, then revival will come. Revival is a work of God. And as such, the instrument of revival is prayer. Verse 7. Show us thy loving kindness. Grant us thy salvation. It's a petition. God is being addressed. It is coming from God. Revival, like salvation, is a gift from God. It's what He freely gives. Having said that, but like salvation comes... As a result of hearing the word of God, how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear without that word? Revival also comes as a result of giving great attention to the word of God. It is not only the fruit. It's also the source. 
It's a praying that God would reveal Himself through His Word. Reading the Bible for 15 minutes a day isn't going to bring revival. But reading the Bible 10 hours a day isn't going to bring revival either. It's not because you've read. It's not a a blessing that comes as a reward for your diligence or your sacrifice. It's rather that the Word reveals who God is and causes us to delight in Him. The Word opens our minds to a perspective of life in which we see a sovereign God ruling over all things that brings peace in a time of turmoil. For God can be trusted. It's the Word of God that causes us to put it down and take up a pad and to pray for those blessings that are revealed in the Word of God. God uses His Word. But it isn't just His Word. It's His Spirit through His Word. So what is the relationship of revival to godliness? Verse 6. Revival results in a greater desire to hear from God. Verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will say. I will hear what God the Lord will say. The God who rules all things, I will listen to Him. I will listen to Him. Meaning, I will obey Him. I will follow Him. I will trust Him. I will do what He says. It is in that light that reading the Word of God becomes profitable. To say, I will do what it says. I will put into practice Practice its precepts. I will follow God. Revival assures the believer that God is pleased with His people. Verse 8, For He will speak peace to His people. There is a sense of fellowship. I hope that tonight you have full assurance in your heart and mind that your sins are forgiven and you are at peace with God. For that is the very essence of the communion table. It's through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven. And so the psalmist says in verses 1 to 3, Your wrath has been removed from us. God's wrath has been removed from us. Can you delight in His forgiveness? Are you assured of His love tonight? Or in the back of your mind, are there things that are hindering you in your fellowship? That's what revival is about. Coming to experience that Inner peace of knowing that I am in a right relationship with God. It produces a greater desire to please God. Verse 8. But if them not turn back to folly. And greater godliness brings honor and glory to God. That glory may dwell in our land. When God's people responding to God as they should, it is glorious. There was a time in our history in which Christianity and Christians were held in high regard. 
There, there was a time in which people had a reverence for God's Word and for the church and for God's people. They were viewed with respect. There was dignity. There was a recognition of the good that the church did. So many hospitals have the name, even in our local community, the Good Samaritan, coming obviously from the parable of the Good Samaritan. We live in a day in which that glory is past. Israel came to experience a time in which the glory was departed from Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 22, Eli dies. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die. The uh, Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And Israel is in just a miserable place and state because of the indifference of God's people. And so the wife of Eli's son says this, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed from Israel. God's name is no longer honored because the unthinkable happened. The ark was captured. People now distrusted God. They didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't see the benefit of worshiping God. For the glory had departed. We are in a state in which the glory of God has departed from our country. Many theologians are already referring to this as a post-Christian era. That many of the tendencies that's now evident in Great Britain are happening in America. At best, people are lethargic about their, their faith. Including even the church as a whole. When God's people respond to God as they should, it is glorious. It is glorious. It is wonderful. And so may God be exalted in our nation again as it begins with us exalting God in our own lives. Revival brings faith and truth together in a beautiful way. Verses 10 and 11. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's a beautiful imagery of how those things which one time seemed as though they were antagonistic, righteousness and peace, how can you have both? Well, they have come together and they have kissed each other. Jonathan Edwards goes on to talk about how things changed dramatically in Northampton. Simple things of how no longer were there backbiting, no longer were there hardships, no longer were they feuding over joint properties and sharecropping. There was a, a, a kindness. There was a, a concern. There was an elevation of, of others. There was a lack of greediness. It's beautiful to read and more wonderful to experience. And how much we should long for. When God is honored and glorified, it results in further blessing. Verses 12 and 13. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before Him and will make His footsteps into a way. We can have absolute confidence in the future. For the Lord is good. 
and our land will yield its produce. If, if we really experience revival in this country, things could be turned around in just remarkable ways. So as we go to communion tonight, here are the thoughts. First, I want us to reflect upon the past benefits that we've enjoyed from God. As the psalmist says in verses 1 to 3, God's fury has been removed from us. As you partake of communion tonight, rejoice that God's wrath has been taken away from you. There's no fear of hell. There's no fear of judgment. There's no fear of ultimate condemnation. Jesus Christ bore it all. That's a cause for thanksgiving, and it should never be lost sight of. Or the present will look far, far more dreary than it is. We also want to fix our attention on the blessedness of the Lord's return and all that's going to happen in association with it. We're to see tonight that Jesus Christ and He alone is the source of our comfort and hope. In the present time, I hope that we want to experience revival. Or, excuse me, a new awakening in the words of Jonathan Edwards. A reviving among God's people. First, a personal or individual revival. That we each would be more fervent than what we are. And boy, I'm starting with myself. that I wouldn't allow other things to creep into my thoughts, that I wouldn't have other ambitions or desires or interests that are incompatible with achieving the purpose and will of God. That when I dream my dreams might be of greater holiness, greater sacrifice, greater goodness, greater intimacy with God. But I would try not to do it on my own, but to recognize how important prayer is and a beseeching of God to give what only He can give. Revival in our church, collectively. Not that just that we would be together, but when we are together, that we are spiritually encouraged, freshened, renewed in our faith, having been motivated to a greater desire for love and good works, that we'd find our time together to be incredibly profitable spiritually. Revival in our denomination. It really pains me how that the Word of God is not being central in worship. It just isn't. The sermon is getting less and less time. Many in our churches, 15, 20 minutes, no evening service. It's as though it's irrelevant, impractical for our day. And believe me, I have no ill will towards our, uh, towards our denomination. And it's worse many other places. 
We need revival. So that there are more opportunities to hear God's Word. There's more of a desire to hear God's Word. And certainly revival in the evangelical church in America. Where things are still worse yet. I ask you a question. Do we believe? Do you believe? That the answer to our nation's ills is in the church or the political system? Are we looking for an earthly leader to solve our nation's issues? Or are we really looking to God to solve our nation's issues? Are we blaming the forces out there or are we willing to take responsibility for our own failures and being the light and the salt in the world that we ought to be? I believe the problem with America is the church. Or Have we forgotten what has made our nation great? We blame secular historians. But when you read the pilgrims, when you read the Puritans, when you understand that the Great Awakening was in the 30s and 40s, and of course, revolution came in the 1770s. You see a precursor. You see a people at their very best. May God grant us a people that are their very best. I didn't have time to read all the accounts. It's it's terrific to read uh, Jonathan Edwards on uh, revival. But he says that the people most affected were the children. The children. And he said it would bring lasting and long value. Boy, is that ever true. May God grant us a spirit of renewal that touches all generations, including our own children. May God remove apathy from us and open our eyes to understand what spiritual bounties are ours to enjoy. This time we're going to take a communion. We ask-